Ageism's rife, there's no doubt about that. But again, if we look at different countries' approach, Japan, they still respect their elders as a, a whole population. But generalising, they certainly respect their elders and what they expect their elders to be receiving has a standard, I think, a lot higher than the country where ageing is not as valued. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. This episode was generously sponsored by our sector champion, Point Click Care. Point Click Care is a leading healthcare technology platform enabling meaningful collaboration and access to real-time insights at any stage of a patient's healthcare journey. Point Click Care's single platform spans the care continuum, fostering proactive, holistic decision-making and improved outcomes for all. Over 25,000 long-term post-acute care providers and more than 1,600 hospitals use PointClick Care today. For more information on PointClick Care's software solutions, visit pointclickcare.com. Welcome back to a new episode of Coming of Age. In 2021, the United Nations declared the Decade of Healthy Aging to mobilize global efforts focused on creating the environment for all of us to age well. There's so much that we can learn from each other, and we are learning. I've been privileged to join a global community of leaders in the seniors' living and care spaces through the Global Aging Network, GAN. This global platform for engagement and sharing proved invaluable during the pandemic as we shared how governments around the world were responding to the evolution of COVID with myriad policies and processes, many that worked and others that didn't. Today, GAN is focused on addressing workforce issues and exploring models of seniors living in care around the world as countries now pivot to meet the needs of aging baby boomers. In this episode, we will explore seniors' care and aging around the world. I'm delighted to be speaking with my peer and friend, Australian aged care industry leader, Judy Martin. For close to two decades, Judy has led the global SAGE Study Tours program, taking leaders from the seniors living in aged care industry on educational tours around the world to experience firsthand how other countries are advancing innovations in living and care for their older citizens. Through Judy's leadership, SAGE, which stands for Studying and Advancing Global Elder Care, has hosted more than 450 industry leaders on tours to more than 15 countries, including the United Kingdom, Europe, Canada, the United States, China, Japan, Scandinavia, New Zealand, and South Africa. In our discussion, Judy shares incredible and thoughtful insights on emerging trends in age care and how culture, governments, communities, 
healthcare providers, and seniors care industry leaders need to interconnect to provide better care for all of us as we age. Let's dive in. I'm delighted to call Judy a friend. I quite honestly don't know what we would have done without her and her leadership throughout the pandemic. I'm wondering if maybe just for the benefit of our listeners, you could start off and explain to us what the SAGE Study Tours organization does. Yes, Donna, I want to reiterate what you said about friendship. I often say, as I travel the globe, that I'm not aware of any other industry where leaders in countries know each other so well at a friendship level. SAGE, it is like an event, a conference for another word, but it just happens to be study tours. The acronym for SAGE came from a group of colleagues late one night, sitting around reflecting on conference discussion and industry discussion. And we just thought it had a really nice A, SAGE, that getting of wisdom, and then thought that soft colour of SAGE. And then we came up with the words to match what we thought was that SAGE getting of wisdoms. It started over 17 years ago. I was working for a fantastic architect company in Australia and they were doing a lot of global leadership. I said I want to do it as thought leadership for our industry, for Australians to travel and take on board lateral thinking or what was happening in the rest of the world that we could bring back to our country and implement. Donna, I've had the absolute privilege to be hosted by about 450 aged care providers around the globe. The aim, I guess, of the the study tours is to evaluate care for seniors from a global perspective. We are taking provider organisations, so it's people that are providing care or solutions, not just care, it could be housing solutions. So looking at it from a global perspective within government policy frameworks, We might go to a provider and they're doing something very lateral that you think you can't do in your own country, but we get back on the bus or we go out for dinner that night and you're discussing that and thinking, actually, we can do that. We've just never thought about it because we immediately put up the roadblocks to why we can't do differing models. And I think that has been one of the best outcomes of the programs that I've seen over the years. It's so interesting to hear you speak about the genesis, even the color and the look. I'm thinking even in the smell of sage, there's a real comfort to that scent. You're in London today as we record this for our listeners. We are very hopeful that you'll come to Canada and that we can host you. If there was one thing that really came out of the last four years, it's we're more alike than we think. And And the opportunity to learn from one another and recognize that no country has it perfect as we think about how we support our aging population. How do you reconcile the opportunities for the trends in innovation with the inclination of governments around the world to take more of an enforcement approach? I look back to a trip we did to South Africa. We went to places that I would rate comparative to Australia as seven-star, some retirement living in some beautiful winery districts. And then in the afternoon, we might have been in a very low socioeconomic village setting that had no access to medication, no access to water. The juxtaposition of that to see together 
really alerted me to the fact that the basic principles of care are not around politics. If we are providing care and housing at a level that we would like to be provided in any setting without giving it a label of aged care or seniors housing, if we stick to those basic principles of what we think are human rights, if we were healthy ageing in any setting, how would we provide that? It's been so wonderful to see in China, the hutong with the all the houses facing into the same courtyard and that looking after each other. The Asian countries had that responsibility to care for your elders. We gave that up far more in a Western demographic, that moral responsibility to care for your elders. We seem to have given that away more quickly than some of the Asian countries. A lot of the European countries still have that, the Italians and the Greeks, looking after your big family. But in Australia, definitely, we have lived in the community where you could be living four hours flight from your parents. Australia's a big country. Canada's a big country. We had to find a solution, and the solution was nursing home. But then our funding frameworks came in, and we started to look at everything from a clinical model, particularly in Australia, We've started to be funded on levels of illness or acuity and your chronic disease rather than levels of wellness. That's now changing. And the more innovative providers in Australia are saying, we want to be healthy ageing, but why is that innovative? The biggest achievement of mankind is to enable us to live longer, but we've moved too quickly. Now our medical framework behind that haven't kept up quickly enough. I look at Japan and they saw the writing on the wall of the population explosion that they were going to have with ageing. This, as a country, has planned this because, as we know, it is only actually 10% of populations in reality, and that seems to be a standard number around the world, that 8 to 15% of people who go into care is around that percentage. What are the other 80% doing? They're living healthily in their own homes. So I think the imposition of a paternalistic approach once you move into a, a care environment has sometimes precluded the ability to maintain the healthy approach to aging. And we're certainly seeing in Canada, it really is the small minority who will need long-term care. And the average length of stay in a long-term care home is about 18 months. So how do we reimagine what does that care environment look like that fosters living and isn't so medically oriented? It definitely has to be a healthy ageing approach and a small household approach. The average length of stay is 18 months. I think a lot of the trends around the world, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, is that that length of stay is actually around three months, getting to be around three months. And it is for very almost palliation. So it is the final stages of your life. You will move to a long-term, but it's actually going to be short-term care environment. And the rest of that is provision of community support, that taking away the loneliness and isolation. There's something shifting that, and I'm not sure if it's because the baby boomers <laughs> are suddenly now recognizing that when we're talking about the aging demographic, we're talking about them. It's certainly in Canada, we have taken a very hospital-centric lens. 
And our communities are built around our hospitals. Our workforce is built around our hospitals. And even as we look at admissions into our long-term care homes in Ontario, more than 80% of admissions into long-term care will be direct from hospitals. So we're not seeing those community admissions anymore. How do we support individuals living at home? Yes, and so are we in Australia. And in actual fact, our funding reflects that, Donna. In Australia, we are funded. The sicker you are in aged care, the more funding you get. We've got it wrong right from the start. Cultural frameworks around which we live and work and age are so important. We went to China in 2006 as our one of our first SAGE trips. When we went there, the care homes were very hospital-focused. In fact, they were from another decade. We didn't learn a lot from that. However, taking that cultural setting question and putting that around it, what we did see, it actually fried our brains in their, what they call their daycare setting. So with the one-child policy and certainly with the, you know, the males having to look after their parents first, there are so many parents out there that didn't have someone to look after. The daughter's married. The daughter has to look after the male's parent because that responsibility. The gentrification of cities, you know, everyone in China moving into the cities, and when we saw a lot of these models, but what we saw was they were day centres, but they weren't like we thought of day centres in Australia, which were almost respite centres. The daycare centres we saw in China were community, for community, by community, about community. We went in there, they were vibrant. There was calligraphy classes, university lectures, singing, exercise classes, Tai Chi going on, active places where the parents went for the day and then got picked up by their young professional children at the end of the day. If you go to China and go to any park at six o'clock in the morning, it is full of seniors doing exercises and classes. And so the vibrancy around that was just amazing. And in the end, I come across one of these parks and I came back and said to everybody, tomorrow morning, this wasn't on the schedule, but we're going to Beihai Park in Beijing because you've never seen the likes of the amount of seniors six o'clock in the morning they had things like the newspaper behind glass on a long wall with everyone out reading it and discussing the newspaper and men chatting and games going on and I think to me that was one of my biggest wake-up calls that I thought this is so simple and the big thing around that was provision of transport to these centres a few years later we went to San Francisco and there's an organisation in San Francisco called Onlock and started by a Chinese community implementing the same community approach that we'd seen in China. But what they then added onto that was almost the hospital in the home type approach where those people who had very, very high clinical needs came to the centres for the day and this section was a medicalised section, but it was there to treat those medical issues, wound care, showering, all those sorts of things. They came to a community environment. And again, it was so vibrant. 
and so interactive. So it was the people who needed that long-term high care, as we called it, got it during the day, and then they went home to their family at night. It's so interesting when you think about how different cultures value their older population. And I am wondering a bit, Judy, how do you feel the public discussion on seniors care and in the media, how do you feel that that is reflected in how different countries are providing care? Yeah, funny, Donna. This morning we were doing the rounds of Buckingham Palace. We're over here in London, as you said, and we got chatting about the Queen was the longest employed and gainfully employed senior, I think many of us know. But how often was that actually celebrated about an ageing issue? It was always written about the Queen's busy, but no one said the Queen is still working in her 90s and actively working. And I can't remember a lot of media that, that celebrated that as a single fact without pity or without overjoyously, you know, making a feel-good media story about it. I just can't see that anyone just made it factual. I was on the radio recently in my hometown and they had invited me in because I'd responded to a very negative media story in almost anger, saying, I'm tired of hearing this. Where are your good news stories? Anyway, the radio station, they actually said, we want to hear some feel-good stories. And I said, well, do you know how much, you know, providers are providing healthy ageing and trying to change? Against all the tide, we are still trying to provide good care and good approach for our seniors. And I said, but if you keep putting these stories in the media, can you for one minute think that your radio program is the only voice someone in a long-term care or nursing home or school may hear? So you are their only friend. They've got the radio on and they're hearing a really bad news story about aged care. What have you done to that person's life for the ripple effect that might have on that person? You've got another person at home being told by their family, mum, it's time to go into long-term care. She's got the radio on. She hears this story. The family hear the story. The bad influence of those negative stories and us the media somewhere has to take responsibility for the angst and ripple effect that it's bringing to the whole community. Well, it really, really has fostered fear. And we do have a collective responsibility to reflect the value of aging, the value of the people who built their communities, who built their families. We have an obligation to support people and encourage people to see that there's a value in working with our aging boomers, but also there's a value in being a family member and providing care. And how do we counteract that fear or that guilt as a family member? And it's a global problem. It's not unique to any one of us, but it certainly has permeated the global discourse around growing old. Ageism's rife, there's no doubt about that. But again, if we look at different countries' approach, Japan, they still respect their elders as a, a whole population. But generalising, they certainly respect their elders and what they expect their elders to be receiving has a standard, I think, a lot higher than the country where ageing is not as valued. I think you're right at the beginning of the conversation, Donna, you mentioned the boomers. Well, we're here. I'm one. 
and already we, we are starting to change. I mean, they changed everything else. Hopefully now they can change this. But I also think the demographic that we have had under our remit or care for the last 30 years were a generation of, we are so glad to have anything after the wars and everything, that anything was better than nothing. Now there's a very, very different demographic coming through who the people power is getting stronger. Before it was the providers and those that had chosen to come into this industry, they're almost fighting the fight on behalf of everybody. I think in one way, what COVID did was wake up. It did do on reflection, giving the world time to reflect on certain things. And so if we take out the medical side of COVID, the implications of what we had to do as a as a world, it made people step back. It made people think a bit more. In Australia, there's still stories about how we suddenly became family focused again when we had all been so busy and out and about. It made us value the really small things, staying at home and lighting candles and on Memorial Days in your street and meeting your neighbours. And there were a lot of good things that we didn't see at the time, but looking back, we are all reflecting now and saying there were some lessons out of that. And I think one of the good side effects of that is that the ageing got a voice and the voice was not just from providers, it was from families. Now, the families may have had the voice in some negative way to start with, but it was a voice nonetheless coming from the community, not just from providers and employed people fighting for the cause of ageing in whatever country it is that we were talking about. So I think that's a good thing, and I also think that's going to get stronger. To your point around the voice of families, the voice of those who are aging, we're certainly seeing a real shift in the demographic of the workforce with new platforms, the gig economy, where perhaps those older models of working are being rejected by a new workforce. So for our listeners, Judy, I first met Judy in Toronto in the fall of 2019, where we co-hosted a workforce summit with the Global Aging Network. When we think of what we were talking about in the fall of 2019 and what some of the trends are now from a workforce perspective, there, there's there really is more disruption as we look at technology uh, and these new platforms, staffing platforms, uh, migration to staffing agencies and temporary work, as opposed to full-time permanent 12-hour shifts where individuals are collecting benefits. There's something that's changed, something very different today. Well, I think the workforce is speaking for themselves this time, and they could in COVID. And now that they're coming back, now we have companies, you know, looking at attractors to bring people back into working in the office. So before, when it was an expectation, you went to an office. Now, who would have thought three years ago, you'd be trying to think of attractors to make people come back to an office because people got a taste of it. This fitted very well with caring for your elders. You, you didn't have to be the one saying, can I take some time off? I've got to take my mum to the doctor or that. Now with flexible workplaces, families have far more flexibility and employers, if they're wise, are going to embrace that flexibility because people work just as hard at home. Place. So they didn't get people who were sitting at home watching TV. 
it wasn't that negativity that it was before COVID, that if you work from home, you must be doing all your washing and your cleaning and your housework. I had so many of my colleagues apologize to me. I've worked from home for 20 years. And I had so many people apologize and say, I'm so sorry. I always thought you just, you know, sort of went out for coffee and pretended you were working. (laughs) I can attest you were on phone calls at three o'clock in the morning, your time. (laughs) Yes. What it did, Donna, is I think it allowed people flexibility. So in terms of family coming back and caring for each other again, and it was seismic of what can be achieved and how we can be achieved it. So I think before when we were talking about people staying at home, they stayed at home, but there was nobody else around. In the neighbourhood, it might have been the neighbourhood was empty. The parks were empty. The parents were at work. The children were at school. So an elderly person living in a community might walk down to the local park and still be lonely. Now that has changed completely because somebody might be down there on their laptop at work. We've got flexibility. You can take your mother to appointments. You can zip over and have a quick lunch. So you're cutting out that social isolation. There's no doubt technology is taking over everywhere. But I think, again, some of the models that we've seen around the globe with ageing that are working is using technology to make our processes easier, freeing up the human being. And Japan have a really nice saying for it. They call it warm hands. So they're robotic and their IT and all the systems that they've put in place are only there to do things that will allow the warm hand approach, which is anything that touches a person. The caring or the sitting with or the allied health needs of someone are still met by the humans, but the reception might be have become more IT orientated. So if we can't get staff, we don't lose a carer first, we lose a receptionist first where we can implement an I, not ideal, but practically if we can't get workforce and we've got the choice of an administration person at the front desk or a carer, we'll take the carer. So therefore we have to find an IT solution for our front desk. And so I think that will come and I think we have to be very cognizant of what sort of IT solutions we're first looking for, looking at and then implementing. And why are we doing it? Is it actually making us more work savvy? Is it decreasing our workload or increasing our workload? And what are we trying to achieve by it? I think we all rushed out there 10 years ago in the market and there was, we were inundated with IT systems and we were pulling them here, there and everywhere. A lot of them took up more work than it saved us. So I think that is one thing. It, as providers of care around the world, we have to look at the more business analyst employment of people to come in and really analyse what we're looking for, why we're looking for it, and will it save us work? The data piece has become far more important for us. One question I have, Judy, as you reflect on everything that you've seen, we're essentially sharing a global workforce. We now are having global discussions. Some of these technology platforms are global platforms. Are we moving to a world, in your view, where we will have international standards and that our ability to communicate and compare and work together will actually move a quality agenda unlike we've ever had before? I don't know if we are moving towards it. I think each country is so focused on their own accreditation standards, but certainly through the Global Aging Network, we're having those conversations as leaders in our own countries And I know we've become far more collaboratively approaching things like this. I think as 
provider organizations, our peak industry associations, and I hope a lot of those are listening to your podcast around the globe, that is part of our reason and our representation of our members is to take those messages to governments that there is no doubt there is a place for it, no doubt at all. It's who drives that. And we've got ISO as a global standard setting. So even if we look at the sort of ISO model and think, why are all the Commonwealth countries doing something different? We can certainly start to influence and advocate for this and saying in time saving and, as you said, international training, we're looking to countries that sometimes they need their carers as much as we need. The countries that we're looking to our workforce for, well, they need their own workforce. So we need to have that train and go home. If you want to come and experience another country, but but allow that training and that caregiving and those standards they worked within are something positive that they can go back home again. They don't have to leave forever. They can go back home. And let's not lose sight of the fact that we have older people who maybe don't want to retire, want to work differently. So nurses could become educators thinking they may not want to work five days a week or seven days a week or six days a week, but they can educate, they can be preceptors and work differently and share their expertise and not lose that generational gift. I think we, and really demonstrating the wisdom to your point, this being sage as one grows older. Again, we were talking today as we, we did our, our London tour and the, the guide was a young guy. He was talking about the amount of retired military, police, teachers, historians, academics who were now guides, employed guides, not voluntary guides, who were now taking on this career in their 70s. And he said we had some very fish active um, people in their 80s being the tour guides. They had the experience, they've got the knowledge, they've got the, it's keeping them healthy. So we were all commenting on that. So there's a little lesson for us already. My husband's a cruise ship captain. And I tell you, there is a very active aging going on there on the oceans of the world. They are healthy aging exemplars of how to live your life, what you're not going to work every day. People are still working, actively working. And then a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of time for myself along the way. So yeah, the whole approach, as you said, it's been seismic and it's overflowing into community that everyone's looking at it. Everyone's starting to say there's workforce issues. It's not just in aged care. There's workforce issues everywhere. And so when we have our discussions about aged care, we are part of the general populace looking at issues in our country. So it, it is getting more focus. So we really do need to think about active living, more intergenerational living and working together, making sure we've got the specialized care and supports in place for that very small population that will need it. But how do we support an older demographic in recognizing it really will take all of us working together in the context of our local communities? We've just recently in Australia had produced the intergenerational report. But in the Netherlands and Scandinavian countries, for many years on the tours, we have seen aged care providers that have got older buildings that they, as a property play, have turned into student accommodation. And in return for your rent, you work at the retirement village. 
It could be as in finance. It could be in the bar. It could be in hospitality. It could be in caring. So the jobs are myriad of training. That was quite thought leadership. Now I think that's a wonderful response for any country to go. We've lost community. When I grew up, we all went off and went to university or colleges that you call in the States and over here in the UK, but you lived in community. The nurses lived in nursing homes. The naval officers lived in Navy accommodation. And we all grew up together and had group homes and group kitchens and group. And then we lost all that thinking it was a bad thing. It wasn't a bad thing. It was a fabulous thing, the community. So I think there's a lot of solutions in housing that can be offered back, particularly in our sector. Nursing homes, if we're going to go to small house models, build or make a property asset of a small house model, but you might have an empty building of rooms, single suited rooms that you can use for younger or affordable housing or workforce housing. We've lost workforce housing a lot of places in Australia, and even when we can, there's no housing or they can't afford the housing. And we're certainly seeing that happen in Ontario as some of our member homes rebuild, they are repurposing their older buildings for student housing, for staff accommodation. Most of our members would say, we are building communities. We're not building a box that's a building. We're building communities that support living, support aging. One of the things that really resonates for me with your tours, Judy, is just the value of experience, experiencing other cultures, seeing what others are doing. How can our listeners get involved with the SAGE study tours? They could contact the Global Aging Network, certainly via our website, and the website is very easy at sagetours.com. Anyone who wants a tour, we do a lot of programs in Australia for individual organisations. They might want to take their board member or their senior leadership team. What's very interesting, Donna, about the tours is, and I underestimated the power of this when I first started them, but I've seen it reflect over and over and over, is if you're travelling with your own colleagues from your own country, getting together back on the bus and talking about what you've just seen and someone says, oh, we couldn't do it. And somebody else says, yes, we could do it. How would you do it? Oh, we'd do it like this. So that networking and chatting, the power of that to me has been amazing. We had one example where a senior CEO of a very, very large organisation in Australia was travelling with his chief financial officer and the architect who was working on his projects, one of his projects, sorry, was on the bus as well. We were in Scandinavia The CEO and the board member was there too. They actually stopped a development back in Australia when they saw some examples and said, we are going down the wrong, we're going down the wrong train. You know, I love that story. And I love that I was there when he did it. And now I see what they did build and think, oh, I know exactly when that started. That's so telling around the impact and such a focus on the possibilities. Judy, thank you so much for bringing the sense of the possible and think about how they could apply it within the context of their own country. So thank you so much for sharing today. I hope some of your listeners have got some ideas out of this. As I said, it really is the power of talking and networking and, and sitting still for a moment. And sometimes the big answers we're looking for are right under our nose. They're very simple. Well said. Well said. A great note to end on. 
Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, the podcast that is changing the conversation on seniors' care and aging. We hope this episode brings a new perspective and inspires you to continue the conversation with your colleagues, friends, and family. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so that more listeners will join our community of changemakers in seniors' care. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan. Keep well.